And again, good morning, everybody in person, online. The events that we have been praying for, both globally and also personally, just reminds me of how vitally important our subject matter is this morning. You might be familiar with the ancient Greek practice, the practice in medieval Europe of a town crier, one who is officially set aside for the purpose of announcing headline news for a populace that largely was illiterate and unable to read. In more recent history, uh, newspaper delivery boys decades ago would uh, would often do the same thing. They'd have their newspaper, but they'd cry out the headlines so that you would be enticed to buy their newspaper so they can make a little bit of money, which is why they're doing what they're doing. I say that to say this. Uh, when I consider, as we cross from the Old to the New Testament, 400 years of silence from the Lord to his people, I envision Matthew as that little paper boy running with the newspaper, with the headlines, and throwing it down and saying, hear ye, hear ye, listen, look, this is important. Your New Testament begins with the gospel of Matthew. And Matthew begins in this way. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The son of David, the son of Abraham. No pleasantries. How you doing? My name is Matthew. I know it's been a while since a man of God has delivered the word. He simply throws down the newspaper and tells every single Jew what they need to hear specifically, which is there is one who has come who has met the legal requirements to be your Messiah. The one whom you have been waiting for and longing for and wondering about and looking for. He has come. They had clarity, these apostles, through the Holy Spirit. Remember, as you read their own accounts in the Gospels, such was not always the case. John, in his later Gospel, the Gospel of John, similarly starts with a punch in chapter 1. He's the one who gives us that behold statement. There he is. That's the one, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. That might sound nice to us as Christians today, but oh, it rang true for a Jew. It had meaning that was deep. It is the most exhilarating, passionate explanation or exclamation the one that we've been waiting for, he's here. We have taken a number of weeks to address the question, why did Jesus die? His death is not a novelty given to us in the New Testament. 
Not something that the disciples sat around afterwards around a campfire and said, well, here's a good spin to put on this. The death of Christ is highlighted and defined clearly and consistently in both the Old and the New Testaments. It has enormous ramifications for each and every single one of us. Indeed, as we have noted many times over the years, when you consider Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus, the first three books in your Bible, one sacrifice in Genesis for a person or a couple, in Exodus, the Passover, one sacrifice for a household, in Leviticus, one sacrifice, the Day of Atonement, for a nation. And put that on repeat until John the Baptist's startling announcement. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin. Not of a, of a person or a household or even an ethnic nation. But the world. So we begin our pilgrimage today in the book of beginnings. In Genesis. And our goal this morning is to cross over from the old to the new. We'll tie together some truths that we've been looking at the last number of weeks. And so we'll do that fairly quickly. We begin today in Genesis chapter 12. God chose Abram. And he told him, he called him to leave everything that he New and to follow God, not knowing even day by day what the next day would hold. I will make you a nation, and here's what I want you to focus on. And through you, God said, all the nations will be blessed. A strange thing to say to an old man with no children, past childbearing age. But with God, nothing is impossible. Genesis chapter 18, recall the Lord as three men meeting with him. The pre incarnate Christ, as we've discussed before, announcing to him and to Sarah that they will be with child. And we know the story. Sarah would laugh, Jesus would hear it and rebuke her. But saints, 39 generations later, the one who gave the message would be born in the house of bread. Because he was the subject, ultimately, of his announcement. And that same story, narrative, 
would be seen again in Zechariah and Elizabeth. As the plain lands in the New Testament, the same scenario. Those who are older and without child will be with child, John the Baptist, because nothing is impossible with God. And of course, a virgin would give birth to a child. But before we leave Genesis, I point you to chapter 22, when God requires of Abraham that very son, that very son of the promise. And he says, I want you to lay him on the altar. What surely feels like a very bizarre passage. Ultimately, though on the altar, he would not be required of Abraham. That very one whom we spoke of, generations later, would lay down his life on those very hills, which would later be named Calvary. We move to the book of Exodus, chapter, the second book in your Bible. One lamb given for one family or one household. Slit the throat of the lamb, capture the blood, and put it on your doorpost. As I deliver you, as I redeem you from slavery, when you walk out of your door for the last time, you will be covered by the blood of the lamb, and you will be free. The Israelites were redeemed from slavery to freedom and blessing in a temporal sense. However, let's begin connecting the dots. Jesus is the true and spiritual and lasting redemption. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Notice the depth and the gospel-saturated language about the blood of the Lamb of God. Ephesians chapter 1. In him, that's Christ. We have redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of our trespasses in accordance with the rich storehouses of God's grace. These sacrifices that were woven into the fabric of the Old Testament are applied directly in Christ to our salvation. We continue to traverse through the Old Testament, the third book of your Bible, Leviticus, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Now we have a nation that would gather annually every single year. There would be two animals involved, two goats. A scapegoat that would bear the sins of the people and be released, never to be seen again, into the wilderness. Ah, but the second, who would do the same, but would meet a different 
fate. That one bearing the sins of the nation would die. A sacrifice. Now I want you to fast forward and think about Jesus' trial. Do you remember Barabbas? Mark chapter 15. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. Barabbas would stand with Jesus. There would be one, according to custom, who would be released. Indeed, it was suggested that Jesus might be a better choice than a hardened criminal with an actual criminal record who has taken human life. But as the crowd would be incited by the religious leaders, we know that did not happen. Verse 15, so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, justice goes out the door, satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Two people. One didn't need to have the sins of anybody confessed on him because he carried them just fine himself, his own sins. But this is what you need to keep in mind with Barabbas. Consider the meaning of his name, which is actually quite unique and a little odd. You might know in Hebrew that when you say the son of of so-and-so, it's bar so-and-so. That's the prefix. Barabbas, bar Abba, the son of of the father. And so there stood the son of the father and the son of the living God, his father. One went free and one took the sin of the world. In all these sacrifices, remember what we talked about recently, the ark of the covenant That mercy seat, the lid that was on top, and those holy justice angels, the cherubim, looking down directly, lit aside, directly to the law of God, the Ten Commandments, those stone tablets, which require justice and which expose our guilt. Coupled with the manna, the provision of God, the bread from heaven, who is ultimately the bread of life from heaven, born in the house of, of the house of bread for our sins. And in between all of that would be the blood that was sprinkled. We looked at the word propitiation. Mercy seat. Propitiation. To appease. To satisfy. That blood was meant as a satisfaction of the holiness and the justice of God. Consider now the New Testament application. Romans chapter 3, verse 25, speaking of Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by 
his blood. Oh yes, in the Old Testament, it was the blood of a bull or the blood of a lamb or whatever animal that was sprinkled right there onto the mercy seat as a propitiation. In the New Testament, the fullness of that is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who is, by his blood, a satisfaction and appeasement of the justice of the Almighty. Remember Isaiah in the prophetic books, he has four servant songs. He is called the evangelical prophet because no prophet speaks more about the Messiah, about Christ with such clarity than Isaiah. These servant songs would cycle throughout the 66 books of Isaiah. We are most familiar with chapter 53, which Joan read for us last week. All we like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And the jarring statement, verse 9 or 10, it pleased the Lord to crush him for us. By his knowledge, my servant will justify many. Please note how Peter applies this very passage as he quotes from Isaiah chapter 53 in 1 Peter chapter 2. Notice what he says in verse 24. Clarity. Remember, this is the guy who rebuked Jesus when he first began speaking of his death and resurrection. Thank you, Peter. He himself, Christ, bore our sins in his body on the tree. Now notice why he says this. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. The scope of his death is not only so you could be forgiven. It would be so that there could be a complete inner transformation. This is the power of the gospel. A complete inner transformation so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness this side of eternity. This side of glory. That's the new life. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things are gone. And behold, all things are new. This is tethered and wrapped up into the death of Christ. Let us not forget the messianic psalms. Remember Psalm 22, which begins like this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, if you know the story of David, you can understand why he would feel like, where are you? In all that I'm suffering, in all those people coming up against me, where are you? That's human. Do you not feel that way sometimes? 
God, where are you in the midst of this? We can identify with him. But as you know, in the Gospels, Jesus takes this very phrase and it makes no sense. In the beginning, John says, John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being by him, and apart from him, nothing has come into being that has come into being. There was eternal fellowship, unbroken, perfect, in every way, with the Father and the Son. Do you see the magnitude of what we are speaking to with the cross? The one who enjoyed perfect, uninterrupted, untainted by sin, fellowship with his father. Was crying out in agony. Why have you left me? The answer to that question will become profoundly clear. It is beautiful and it is jarring. Because on the tree, he became a curse. He not only bore my sins, he became my sins. And it is at that time, in the fullness, that Christ absorbed the holy wrath and justice of God in his own being. Don't be fooled. Crucifixion is a horrible way to die. But he wasn't the only one to do so. That wasn't the agony. That wasn't the fullness of the agony. It was but a drop of it. That separation between him and his father, absorbing the justice of God, is how Christ ultimately fulfilled that statement. And if you read later on in that chapter, it talks about those dividing up the garments and so on and so forth, casting lots. It's about Christ. When we look at the actual accounts in the Gospels, the betrayal, the trial, and the death of Christ, let us not forget leading up to all of it right immediately beforehand, Jesus praying in the garden of Gethsemane, praying in agony. Sweat drops of blood. A most extreme expression of enormous anxiety. Think for a moment with me. Reason with me for a moment. There are many, many thousands of Christ followers who have laid down their life for their testimony. We know Many of them did so singing hymns and praises. Many did so with great courage, strengthening one another as they knew what the next morning would bring them. Did Jesus, out, did Jesus followers outdo the lead? 
Why was Jesus sweating drops of blood? Again, I submit to you. He knew what was coming. Oh yes, I am sure he shrunk back in his humanity from the agony and from the excruciating, remember, excruciating ex-crucifixion from the crucifixion, the pain that is associated with the crucifixion. We know that surely he was shrinking back from that in his humanity, but that was not the extent and that was not the majority of that which was troubling him so deeply in his soul. Jesus would stand trial. And on the whim of the people, Barabbas would be let free. The guilty would go free. And the innocent would suffer. But, O oh, saints, when we look at the death of Christ, when we examine the description of the death of Christ, we find the most spectacular and peculiar events associated with the death of Christ. Matthew chapter 17. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and he did something that you never read about with anyone else. He gave up or he yielded his spirit. Even in death, he was in control. But watch what is associated with the death of Christ. It is punctuated with the word, behold, and for good reason. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs. After his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. What? I want you to focus on that first part. The curtain or the veil of the temple was torn in two. You might recall there was a very thick veil or curtain that separated the priest of God doing his duties from Everything and everyone else. Why? Because God is holy. And we are not. God cannot and will not have fellowship, relations with people, with sin. It sounds extreme. Because we can never diminish or sidestep or ignore the holiness of God. But we said from the beginning that the cross is the most profound expression of love and justice. 
mingled together. You see, time and time again, when the blood of the bull or another animal was sprinkled onto the mercy seat, that was fine for now. But that veil remained intact. But it was when the Lamb of God laid down his life, when Jesus shed his blood, that this spectacular and unique event took place. In a moment, access to God was not dependent upon one person who was frail in his own sin, who had to offer a sacrifice that day before standing on behalf of people before God. Oh, it was torn from top to bottom, and please do not overlook that. Remember Harry last week trying to rip my little beach towel? If you're going to rip something like that that's hanging on a rod, you start from the bottom. Not so. Not so here. Because otherwise we might miss or explain away what took place. Access to God through the death of Christ. We began this morning in the book of beginnings in Genesis. Let's look at the last book. At Revelation. Please forever banish any mental image you have from silly pictures and paintings of the resurrected and glorified Christ being feeble, holding a lampstand, as if he can barely hold himself up. When John beheld Jesus. What does it say? Revelation chapter 1. When I saw him, I fell at my feet as dead. If your image of Jesus falls short of this, we need to go back to God's word and develop a Jesus that is, in, that is consistent with what he has revealed about himself. How did Jesus identify himself? I want you to see this. But he, Christ, laid his right hand on me, saying... As is typical, fear not. Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. It's an odd thing for someone to say who's talking to you. By the way, I'm alive. I died. Here's the behold statement. Behold. Listen. Watch this. 
I am alive forevermore. That is how Jesus identifies himself. I was dead. I died. But obviously, not anymore. And the authority, I have the keys of death and Hades. Why is this significant? You see, this cycles all throughout history. This is nothing new. But there is an undercurrent of thought today. Ideas that are promoted. That the death of Christ... Well, that's interesting. We can apply many different explanations to it. And my explanation actually might completely diminish the importance of it altogether. As if it's a sideshow. What you really need to focus on is his teaching. Do you love, his na- do you love your neighbor? That's it. We'll talk about the death of Christ later. In many different ways, the death and, of course, the resurrection of Christ is either ignored, diminished, sidestepped altogether. And what I have felt the Lord has put on my heart is to speak directly not only to the truth, which is the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the centerpiece of Scripture. But I also want to show you the why. This is not me simply beating a drum of my tribe, if you will. This is me speaking the truth of God's word. The purpose of that little illustration with the beach towel was it's hard to rip something apart if it's woven together so well. And I desire for you and for me to see this very clearly. The testimony of God, the testimony of the word of God is that the death of Christ, obviously, and the resurrection and the ascension of Christ is breathtaking. It is beautiful. It is glorious. It is never to be ignored. But it does have tremendous consequence for each and every single person remember paul said Acts 17 on mars hill that he is the one that god has entrusted judgment to the one who died and rose again that would be christ i leave you with this to consider again we're still in revelation one as we were earlier verse five This is John's description. John is the beloved disciple. He was very close with Jesus. Remember that. He was likely the only disciple that did not die a martyr's death, but rather in seclusion. To him who loves us and has freed us From our sins. How? How? By his blood.
Stop for a moment. These words that we read, particularly in the New Testament, some of us can become so used to them because we see them a lot. And maybe some of us, like me, we were raised in the church and we hear these things. And maybe we hear it so often we don't really stop and consider the depth and the beauty and the glory and the horror of the words that we're reading. To him who loves us. Well, how do I know he loves me? That's a sentiment. That's a nice sentiment. But quite frankly, what I hear in culture today is, well, I love you. And it's just kind of, it's like fog. You're just walking through trying to figure out, well, why? What's the basis of it? How is that expressed? What does it look like? How does it impact me? Well, here's how it impacts you and me. The word blood. The unfathomable. I mean, go back and read the first 11 verses of Philippians chapter 2. Where he tells us, Paul, where he tells us to be patient with one another. To be humble with one another. To treat one another in humility of mind. And he says, if you want to know what that looks like. Think of Jesus, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And as he develops his thought, Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, who took the form, was found in the likeness of man. Again, things that we never say about one another. But you have to about Jesus. He took the form of his own creation. A servant. And then he became obedient to death. Nobody says that about you. We never say that about one another. It's inevitable. We know it. But of Jesus, you have to clarify what you're saying. He became obedient to death, but not just death. Criminal's death. An excruciating death. And he shed his blood. That's how I know that he loves me. What he went to. To redeem me. That I might be forgiven. Reconciled. At peace with God. To him who loves us. And has freed us from our sins. Remember the penalty and the power of our sins. Only Christ could do that. And only by way of the cross. And look at the fruit that it yields. And made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We'll continue our deeper dive into the New Testament and the testimony of the New Testament. I sincerely hope, again, we could have, we could have this series for months on end. 
But my goal has been to help us to see how the Hebrew Scriptures, the New Testament, speak of the death of Christ, how that story on so many different levels, it is woven together so tightly, so consistently all throughout Scripture that you cannot deny it. You cannot ignore it. And for those of us who have been born again, it is the most beautiful, beautiful topic that we could ever speak to. We never grow tired of it. It never becomes old. It never becomes boring because there's a simple truth. He loves me. I know my sin, but I know it's gone. I will never answer for them ever again. And by God's grace, I can now walk in holiness before God. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together. Indeed, what deep and beautiful truths we are pondering. Emmanuel, God with us. Where holiness and justice and righteousness meet together with agape love and mercy. And forgiveness and hope. Praise God for the cross. Praise God for that simple truth that we cling to, we celebrate. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. The simplicity, the power, the beauty, the majesty, the glory. If you have never put your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your only Savior, today is the day. Confess and acknowledge your sins. Acknowledge who Jesus is. And trust in him alone for your salvation. Oh, Father, thank you for the beautiful gift of eternal life. How could we ever adequately say thank you? Lord, may our actions speak louder than our words. May we develop humility and patience with one another. May we have a disposition of kindness to those around us. Always eager and ready to share the good news. In these times of upheaval and difficulty 
and heartache and challenge. May we be refreshed and encouraged and strengthened through the fellowship of your Holy Spirit. As we stand on the truth of your word, as we grow in that truth, as we remind ourselves and one another of that old rugged cross and all that it means for us. It is no secret that the two fastest growing churches on earth in Afghanistan and Iran The numbers of the saints growing exponentially under persecution and suppression. Because you are the way, the truth, and the life. May they flourish and thrive and be boldened and strengthened in their testimony and comforted in their trials and affliction. May we, on our padded chairs and couches, not grow weary, but take heart, be encouraged, and be emboldened. Jesus is Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.